All right, good morning. If you would, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Give you a few seconds or a moment to turn there. And uh, then we'll have a word of prayer. Then we'll jump right in. We're going to save the review for the end. At least that's the plan, so... You know how plans are, right? All right, Hebrews 3 and 4, we're considering this second warning passage. Started into it last week, didn't quite get everything that liked to in that. Anyway, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll jump right back in here, all right? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity this morning. Please help us, help us to have uh, the right appreciation and right love and uh, write devotion to both you and your word and the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. This warning passage, there's five warning passages, and they're all similar in that they're warning about the seriousness, uh, really, of salvation, of heeding what God says and doing, you know, believing and doing what God says. Now, they have some different angles, all of them perhaps. Uh, this one and the next one, the third one, which we haven't seen yet, are very similar, okay? And they're kind of close together in the book as well. But uh, this, this uh, warning passage, I think too, it's important to keep in mind its context in Hebrews because it's, it's in, the, in the portion of Hebrews dealing with the person of Christ and particularly now his faithfulness, his, his, his superiority because of his faithfulness, and it's really warning about us, in a way, faithfulness, but it's warning about missing true faith in Christ. That's really what it's about, all right? And so understanding that, obviously, the big picture of it helps understand the parts of it, because there are a few parts of it that can be misunderstood, uh, if one's not careful, and particularly if one wants to isolate these portions from other, you know, the rest of God's Word, all right? So, uh, obviously, we don't want to do that. There's always a danger in that. I certainly believe, uh, and, and I'm sure that you do as well, that, you know, God's Word is such that uh, a portion in the book of Hebrews is not going to contradict what the rest of the Bible is teaching, all right? And so, uh, all of it fitting together and fitting together right is something that it does and something that is a job of us to understand how that does fit and how it, it works together, all right? So uh, this second serious warning pas passage in the book of Hebrews really has two parts to it, all right? The first one is expressing the danger of unbelief, uh, and then the second one is 
expressing the consequences of that unbelief, which is missing. And here it uses a term, God's rest, or the rest, okay? Now, that's a term that's used in a variety of ways in the Scripture. There's rest that God undertook in the creation week, right? Now, it's not because he was tired. Uh, it's not because, you know, he was just exhausted from all of that. I mean, he didn't really even work in creation, all right? I mean, he, you know, it's basically he thought, he spoke, and boom, it's there. I mean, uh, it, it's not because he was so tired, but it was an example, and it, there was a purpose in creating the Sabbath and this various stuff. Of course, the Sabbath was incorporated in the Mosaic Law and so on, but it was a principle for man even before the Sabbath. But anyway, um, but rest, and particularly in this context, it also goes back to use the rest that the children of Israel were able to have when they got into the Promised Land, although... If you, <coughs> excuse me, I'm having some issues this morning as well, but when you think about it, even in that situation of being in the promised land and, and having rest, they still had work, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't, I mean, they had, they had wars and battle the whole time of, of you know, the, the conquest through the whole book of Joshua for years. They were, they were battling, all right? Uh, but they were obtaining the rest that God had promised. Now, it was through faith that they were able to do that, okay? But then rest, as the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's going back and, and kind of appealing to both of those previous types of rest to use rest here in the sense of what we would say the rest that the child of God has in salvation, all right? In other words, coming into that, that point of rest, now, again, that doesn't mean for, if you're saved that you're, you know, you're spending all your time sleeping or, or spiritually, you know, you're at ease. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? But there's a, a point of rest, okay, where you have come into something that God has provided and promised and you in, you're, you know, in a place of being able to enjoy that, all right? And that's, that's the idea, of this, okay? It doesn't mean like rest, you know, taking a nap, going to sleep, that kind of an idea, okay? So this is the, the warning of this, this part here in Hebrews is, is warning against missing that rest, all right? So missing salvation, and that's important because uh, some of the statements, again, there's several statements in here that can be confusing if we don't take everything in, in the right context and so on, all right? So this portion basically is in from verse 7 of chapter 3 into verse 13 of chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, we kind of went through a lot of it last week. And again, we're not talking about every verse or every word and, and statement here uh, because of time. But notice the first word in verse 7, wherefore, and then the rest of verse 7 down through 11 is quoting from Psalm 95. So then, wherefore, if you jump to verse 12, wherefore, take heed, brethren. Again, watch out is the idea. Literally, the word is, is to look, to watch, okay? So take heed, pay attention, watch out, brethren. Now, brethren can be used here in a sense of loosely. I mean, he's just addressing them. He did previously address them as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That, that, those are things that are only true of Christians, Right, but like a number of Bible writers, the word brethren is used in other ways. Okay, 
uh, here probably because the book is a Jewish emphasis, okay, that's probably more the idea here. Now, but he says, take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So that's what this is about. Have, you know, not having a heart of belief, but rather a heart of unbelief. That's the, that's the, the comparison. But then he says, in departing from the living God. And, and really the idea is, unbelief will result in a person turning away from salvation. Anybody that would be addressed directly in that initial you know, uh, setting that the book of Hebrews was intended to would have had, they would have been people that, doesn't mean they were saved, but they were people that were at least mingling with people that were saved. They were taking part of things uh, in, in a professing way. All right, and there's people like that today in churches, you know. I don't know if there's any in this church, obviously. I don't, nobody knows that for sure, perhaps, but God, okay. But, and we'll see how that is alluded to later in this warning, but that's a possibility always. It is. Uh, I mean, all that we have to look at or to examine, if you want to say, is we can hear what somebody says and we can see what their life evidences, okay? And we can or may not come to the right conclusion based on those things, okay? I mean, you know, only God knows the heart. We don't know, we can't see people's hearts, okay? And you might say, well, why would some, there's all kinds of reasons why people would be in that condition and in that situation, all right? And probably most everybody, if I'm not going to say everybody, but Probably a lot of people here were at, at some degree or another in that condition, right? Before really getting saved, you know, before coming to... I mean, it, there's all kind, everybody has a unique situation, unique, unique background and circumstances and, and all of that. Not, we're not cookie cutters as far as everybody's stamped the same way and comes out, you know? Uh, so, but he says... In, uh, take heed so you don't have an evil heart which is going to result in departing from God, from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called the day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. All right? Sin is always deceitful, but here the point is collectively we have a responsibility to be exhorting one another. And one of the reasons for that, as we see here, is because our exhortations can make a difference in somebody else's life. All right? Everybody's familiar with probably the most popular exhortation talked about in Hebrews, right? Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but what? Exhorting one another, right? Okay? So, I mean, everybody's familiar. But that, that, that idea is used throughout the book of Hebrews, as we'll see. All right, so we're to be exhorting, and then he says, um, uh, just in verse 14, for we are made, this is, this is another verse right here, this statement. These several verses here are probably the most confusing to people, but we're made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, if you just hear that verse or that statement, you think about it, you could come to the conclusion that's saying that we can be saved if we hold on, if we persevere, that kind of an idea. 
It's possible to come to that conclusion just based on reading that, okay? But is that what the Bible teaches about salvation? That's, that's a bigger question to ask here because this isn't going to be teaching something different than what the rest of the Bible teaches, okay? That's the point, and that's a point that's important to understand. That's how, by the way, that's how cults operate. They take some obscure statement in the Bible and they build their whole belief system around some obscure, hard to understand statement and they neglect all the clear stuff in the Bible. I mean, that, that's how cults operate, okay? But anyway, so is that what it's saying? Well, we would say obviously not because of we know the bigger picture, what all the Bible teaches. So what is this saying, okay? And I believe there's two possibilities here of what it could be saying. Let me, let me word it that way. And it, I think it could be either one. Either one would be scriptural, okay? But there's two ways that I think are, are fair to understand this. One is it's saying, now, now you, to, to understand grammar and so on here with this, the idea of being made a partaker of Christ is something that happens, okay? And it's a, it's a uh, it's a perfect tense. The idea is it's talking about something that has happened and it's completed. Okay? So just in, in some ways about it, there's no way it could be saying that that happened and then you lose it. Okay? So that, that's not a possibility. But you're made a partaker if you hold the beginning of, our conf of the confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, two ways. The most normal way that most people, most uh, Bible uh, students of our persuasion would, would say that it means is, okay, it's, it's saying that, and I'm going to word it this way, they don't necessarily verb it this way, but, it, you know, after your life is done, all right, the totality of your life is going to tell, it's going to give the evidence as to whether or not you were saved. In other words, if you're saved, all right, you're going to keep believing, doesn't mean that you're not going to have times of, you know, questioning things and all that. Everybody does because of temptations, testings in our lives, pressures, and so on. But a true Christian will believe. You're never not going, you know, you're never going to forsake that faith. That's the idea, all right? That's one way to understand it. The other is, all right, so in other words, the... the you know, if you endure, if you want to word it that way, that proves that you were saved. That's one way of looking at it. That's how it seems to typically be understood. Another possibility is that the holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end is this, and I'll try to illustrate it this way, the picture. I've used this illustration, I think, the past couple weeks. All right, if you come out pool in the parking lot, can you say you came to church? Well, again, maybe a matter of semantics, right? But in reality, what we're talking about is pulling in, getting out, coming in through the door, and participating. That's really what coming to church is, right? But there can be people. So liken that, let me, let, let me use that as an illustration, liken that to salvation. And I'm not saying that church is salvation, okay? But liken that picture. Just like salvation is coming in and being in Christ, okay? There are lots of people that pull up in the parking lot 
There are some people that just see a sign, they drive by. They read the sign. They pay attention to it. They might even think about that. They might even think, you know, one day I ought to go there. Right? Some people pull in the parking lot. And maybe they just sit out in the parking lot the whole time and observe, watch. Some people get out, walk up, and, you know, some people might even come right up to the door and just stand there at the door, okay? But what I'm saying is, Lots of people have various spiritual experiences that fall short of actually coming to faith in Christ and becoming saved, getting saved. There's a variety of that, all right? And what I'm getting at is another way to look at this is that the, the idea of the end here is not talking about like the end of your life. You hold fast unto the end, but it's the idea of the there's a beginning of faith, right, where there's a process that starts. Now, I'm not saying salvation is a process. Don't get me, don't, don't take me wrong there. But there is a process in everybody's life of coming to salvation. And that's different for everybody. I mean, nobody, probably no two people in this room have the exact same background and circumstance, all right? But, uh, but that coming to salvation is different for everybody. And not everybody that starts on that journey ends up coming to the end of that, which is salvation. All right, coming into salvation. All right, and I don't want to take the rest of the time talking about this verse, but that's another possibility that is scripturally correct and grammatically correct as well with this. It fits either one. All right, that the end is not talking about the end of your life and you're finally going to make that kind of an idea. No, it's talking about the end is the completion, coming to salvation in Christ. Okay, uh, and, and personally, I, I prefer looking at it that way. Again, I, I can't say that the other's wrong, this is right necessarily, but both can be right. All right, and both are scriptural takes on it, fitting with, with other scripture. All right, and then, then he says, uh, verse 15 again, he, he reminds them of that Old Testament example. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice. Now, there's a, there's a sense here in which he's reminding people that even after the Sabbath rest, even after the Israelites went into the land of Canaan, uh, and so on, because he's, he's referring, the main Old Testament passage he's referring to throughout here is Psalm 95, which was written hundreds of years after the conquest in Canaan. Right? In fact, he attributes in chapter 4, verse 7, that psalm to David, so uh, four to five hundred years okay, uh, after that initial time coming into Canaan is, uh, is David living, and David's writing that, and he's, he's quoting that as saying, you know, today is the day that we ought to believe God. So the point is, you know, with God, there's an, it's, it's not something that happened in the past. Today is the day of salvation, as 2 Corinthians says. There's an ongoing invitation to come and believe God for anybody that's not, all right? And whether it's the Old Testament, New Testament, and so on, all right? And he's appealing to that again. Then in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, let us therefore fear. Again, some very serious wording that we need to, we need to be careful when it comes to salvation. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us, and the idea is 
that we are left behind of the promise because we don't latch on to it. All right, it's a matter of faith again. Um, promise left us of entering into that rest, into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Then he says, you know, the gospel is preached to us. It was preached to them and so on. Uh, and then again, he's referring back to the, to the Old Testament example here. And then let me jump down to verse 11 again. This is where we were starting and then we left off last week. He says, um, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. And by the way, this is another reason why I believe the second possibility that I gave to you a minute ago is correct, because I think it coincides more with verse 11 here. Let us labor to enter into that rest. We don't labor to be saved. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot work for salvation. But that process of getting to salvation can be toilsome. It can be a time of, of great uh, stress and turmoil and so on in a person's heart and life for various reasons, because there's struggling that goes on, all right? I mean, the, the world and the flesh and the devil are, are obviously opposed to anybody getting saved. They want their way. And there's a, a toil, a, a humbling of oneself, a submission to him, a surrender. If you, I mean, there's different ways you can word it, and I think they're all scriptural, all right? Uh, there's not just one way. The Bible, the Bible describes salvation in all kinds of ways. It doesn't describe it in just one way um, and for various reasons, okay? But, but he says, let us labor to enter into that rest. So getting to that rest, that point where we are in salvation, can be difficult. And that's where we started looking last week at some other passages. We, we uh, in fact, go back now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we were. I'm just going to remind you of one here, and then we're going to go on to some others. But in Matthew 7, Jesus is the one speaking here, and he warns of this, of the seriousness of salvation, and don't take it lightly. It can be a difficult thing, and Jesus himself says that. In fact, he, I mean, well, look at, let him say it instead of me. All right, verse 13 of chapter 7. We read it last week. Enter ye in at the straight gate. The word straight, notice the way it's spelled. It's not our typical way of spelling straight today, and it's not the same word, by the way. It doesn't mean like straight, like a board straight or versus crooked, but it's straight. The word straight means restricted, narrow, difficult. That's the idea of this word. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. The way to destruction is easy. That's the idea. In fact, you don't really have to do anything. You just keep on the way you are. You don't have to make any effort to be on the way to destruction. But if you're going to find eternal life, there is some Difficulty in that. And again, this is Jesus saying this. I'm not making it up. All right. He says, because, uh, for, and that means what? Because wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in there at. Notice he says many are there because straight is the gate. In other words, notice the word because. What he's, he's giving you the reason for what he just said, why many 
or many enter the wide gate. Why? Because the straight gate is that. It's difficult. It's straight. It's narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. He's making a comparison. Straight and narrow means difficult. You know, it's like trying to squeeze through something and it's, it's hard to do. That's the idea. But let me just say again, Jesus isn't saying that you have to work to be saved. That's not the point. Because he says, what he's saying is the hard part is getting to the gate. Finding it and going through it. All right? He's the one that provides the gate. In fact, he is the gate. He's the door. All right? But getting to him is difficult. Many times. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And then notice what he says, and few there be that find it. Now, we looked also at the last part of uh, chapter 7 there, the, the illustration of the, the two guys building houses, one on the rock, one on the sand. Look at Matthew chapter 13. We'll just kind of go through a few things here. Matthew chapter 13 there's seven parables that Jesus teaches as presented in Matthew 13 here. The first one is probably one of the more familiar ones to a lot of people as far as knowing it's there, all right? Uh, the parable of, usually it's referred to as the parable of the sower. In fact, Jesus even calls it that. Um, it's more about the soils than it is anything else, okay? But you're familiar with it, all right? It talks about a sower went out to sow, and he, he cast seed, all right? And the seed, it's the same sower, the same seed, but the difference is there's four types, four types of soils. I do that often, sorry. Uh, my fingers don't coordinate with numbers coming out of my mouth. Anyway, uh, <laughs> four types of soils, okay? There's the... the Soil that's by the wayside, that's the road, the path that's walked. Because it's hard ground, the seed can't, doesn't penetrate it, and it says birds come and snatch it away, right? And you're, um, everybody here is familiar enough with this parable to, to remember and understand what Jesus is saying, right? And then one that's sown in, it says, uh, stony ground, right? And really what the idea of that is, it's dirt over rock, so it can't take root because of the stone, because of the rock. It starts to spring up in the soil, but the roots can't do what the roots are supposed to do because it can't get through the rock, right? And then there's another seed. The next one's cast in, uh, in thorny places where there's weeds and so on. In fact, Luke says the thorns choke it out. Uh, I mean, eat, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present this parable. They all have slightly different wording and places on it and that. All right. But the weeds. All right. So it's, it's, it's ground that's cluttered with, everything, with a lot of things. And again, what happens? The seed has an immediate response. Right. But it doesn't endure, if we could say it that way. All right. And then the fourth is good ground. He said it, some fell on good ground where it sprang forth and what? Brought forth fruit. That's the key word there. Now, some brought forth 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but all of it brought forth fruit, all right? And that ground was, he called, good ground. So in other words, that was 
proper ground. That's the ground that any farmer would want to plant in, all right? It was ground that was already worked, and the soil was prepared, ready to receive seed, so that the seed could, could uh, uh, respond, all right, and become fruitful. Now, here's the question. Obviously, in those four situations uh, together, the four situations describe different responses to the gospel. Because when Jesus explains the parable, he says the, uh, the seed is the word. That's what he says. All right? So it's God's word as it goes forth. So, by the way, this isn't limited to salvation because... Uh, Christians can have the same kind of responses to, you know, to preaching and teaching of God's word in our hearts, okay? But thinking of this in a matter of salvation, because there's by principle here at least, it pertains to salvation, all right? Which of those seeds would we say had a saving faith, a saving response? All right, obviously the one in good ground, and obviously not the one in the first one, in the hard ground, because it had no response whatsoever, right? No response. But what about the other two? Part of the point being with that is, some could argue it's hard to tell, because they had some kind of response. But my point being is, here's the no, no way response, over here is the fruitful response unto salvation, and there's people that are in between. People that begin, but they don't come to the end of that process of coming to faith in Christ. All right? And what Hebrews 4, verse 11, says, we need to labor to enter into that rest. And again, that's not talking about where we work to get saved, you know, but it's talking about coming to a point where we are in rest, that we're in salvation. And I believe that that, that parable uh, illustrates that truth very well. All right. A um, couple other places here real quick. Again, debating about what way to... Let's uh, go, go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm not necessarily talking out of turn here, I, I, but, but I'm going to, I'll tell you my view of this, all right? Um, Mark chapter 8, there's similar statements that Jesus is recorded as making in each of the Gospels, all right, to what we're going to see here. We may look at John's here because I think John's really clarifies it. But here in Mark chapter 8, at, toward the end of the chapter, um, verse 34, all right? And when he had called the people, he is Jesus, called the people unto him with his disciples also. So in this instance, it makes it clear Jesus isn't talking just to his disciples. He's talking to other people as well. But they're all, you know, variety of people are present. He says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow 
me. All right, now stop for a second. Whosoever will, the word will here, doesn't, it's not like a future tense, like if, you know, whoever will do this, or, but the word will here is the idea of whoever purposes to, whoever desires to. It's, it's expressing your, the person's will to do something is the idea. If you purpose to do this, if you desire to do this, all right, whoever desires to come after me is the idea, all right? What does he got to do? He needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, let me just, again, pause here. And again, I, I hope I'm not uh, talking out of, out of place, whatever. But m- the majority, the majority of independent Baptist people that I have ever heard or know of would put this, this passage in other. Again, there's, there's, there's statements in, Mar- in Matthew, Mark, here, uh, this is Mark, and Luke, uh, and in John that are very similar, okay? Um, and I think Jesus probably said this kind of thing on more than one occasion. They're not necessarily like they have to all be the same occasion, but he probably said it on various occasions because this is an important statement, all right? But the majority of independent Baptist people seem to lump this in what they call a discipleship requirement. In other words, if you're saved and you really want to be, you know, a a real disciple of Christ, these are the conditions for that. That is more popular than it's not popular in independent Baptist circles based on my observation and my experience. Okay, now that's not always the same as everybody else's in here. Okay, My, my belief is Jesus is talking about salvation here. He's not talking about some experience after salvation, he's talking about salvation, all right? And then people would argue, the, the others that don't think, they would argue, say, well, you're talking about this is a work salvation then. You got to do this to be saved. No, that's not the point. Again, it's the same principle as what we've been talking about. There is a toiling, a, a, a striving, if you want to say, a struggle that takes place in coming to salvation. It's not talking about doing works in order to be saved. I mean, the Bible makes it clear, we could say it's a no-brainer, that's not even in consideration, all right? That's out of the picture. But there's a struggle in coming to salvation for a person. And, And again, based on who they are, where they are in life and all the things that are involved in that, that's that's gonna vary between people. It's not always the same, okay? But Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me. If you want to follow me, now again, again, people would say, well, that means following him as a disciple. Well, let me just put it this way. I believe every Christian is a disciple of Christ, all right? You're a follower of Christ. I met a guy on a job once. Um, he was doing siding, and uh, just so you could tell wasn't like everybody else, right? And anyway, and I, and I don't remember how we got started talking, and I asked him, something and his answer was i'm a follower of the lord jesus i thought "Ah, that's a good way to say it you know instead of saying i'm saved i'm born again he said i'm a follower of the lord jesus and uh but i believe that's what a saved person is they're a person who's following the lord jesus not everybody follows exactly as they should obviously and you know but a christian is a follower of the lord jesus all right, but he says if you're going to do that, you got to deny yourself. What's that mean? 
You got to say no to yourself. All right? Does that describe repentance? Does that describe a submission to Christ? All right? All of these do. All right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross. All right? Again, this is dealing with that coming to a point of, uh, in fact, in other places, other verses, Jesus says something to the effect of losing one's life. And again, the people that say, well, that, that, that's talking about you, a, a Christian dying for the cause of Christ. No, it's talking about you are willing to turn your back on, you're willing to give up your life, so to speak. And by the way, that's involved in salvation. We might not always word things this way and think of it, but it's, it's turning from an old life to a new life. And it's part of salvation. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the only part of these that's not a, a point-in-time action. That's a continuous thing. In other words, when you come to that point, then you're the place where you can follow him. The word faith doesn't appear in this verse. But it's talking about coming to faith in Christ, being a follower of him. All right? Um, well, in fact, here, in, in, I, I said some verses, for, verse, keep reading, for, for, verse 35, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Again, I've heard people say, that's talking about somebody like being a martyr for Christ. That's not what it's talking about. It's you willing to lose yourself, lose everything for him. It's a matter of a person's a point of turning from and turning to is what it is, all right? Um, then he says, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, you could pursue your life and gain everything theoretically in this world, but what's it going to really gain you? Nothing, because there's coming a time when you're going to lose it all because you weren't willing to lose it for Christ, Hold, hold that thought and turn over. This is a passage that wasn't even on the radar before, but just came to my mind. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And i got to hurry so we have time for review here. But um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's a portion of Scripture here that's talking about the Antichrist and, and so on, okay? And the verses that we're going to read are something that takes place after the rapture, okay, when the Antichrist is on the scene, he's revealed and so on, and how people are going to follow him, all right? But in, uh, well, look at verse 8, verse 8. And then shall that wicked, the idea is that wicked one, be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's at the close of the tribulation, at the second coming, when Jesus comes back. He's going to destroy the Antichrist, okay? Um, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they... Now notice, the idea is there's coming a time. This is talking about after the rapture, all right? Um, and I believe in, in, a, in a way this is specifically applicable to people that hear the gospel before the rapture, all right? And they, now, and I've heard people, you know, preachers say that if, if anybody hears the gospel before the rapture, they're not going to have a chance to get saved after it. 
I don't necessarily believe that's the case, but this is talking specifically about people that heard the gospel, yes, understood it, and said no to it. And I think there's a difference there. Because, by the way, there's going to be, the Bible says in Revelation 7, there's going to be a number that no man can number of people that are saved during the tribulation time. But it's not people that's rejected, knowingly rejected Christ prior to, the, you know, to that. But there will be an untold number of people that are saved during the tribulation time. Those 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be very effective in their ministry, by the way. That's, uh, anyway, um, but he says here, he's talking about a specific group of people, but there's a principle here that I want to, want to pull out, okay? The people he's talking about that are going to be deceived and believe the lie of the devil for the Antichrist, their people, notice how they're described here, uh, they're perishing, all right? That, that means they're unsaved, but he says, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, and for this cause shall God send them strong delusion. Now here's another description, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, they made a conscious decision. They chose unrighteousness over Christ. They chose unrighteousness over righteousness. They chose their way over salvation, all right? Now, again, I think it's talking about a specific situation in the tribulation time, but the principle there is the same as what Jesus says in the verses in Mark 8, that a person has to, they have to deny themselves. They have to come to a point of not wanting what they are anymore and wanting him. And again, we don't always think about things in this way when we're talking about salvation, but this is how Jesus described it numerous times, by the way. In fact, in John chapter 12, let me see if I can find that real quick, the specific verses. John chapter 12, we see a very similar statement, and I think in a way John's statement makes it clearer here. All right, John chapter 12, um, Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except, this is Jesus speaking, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now notice how he elaborates on this. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. You see, same principle as what he said in Mark 8, just worded a little bit different, and I think here, again, he, it, it makes it a little more clear. And then, uh, verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there, also, there shall also my servant be. If any man shall serve me, him will my father honor. Um, anyway, that's the gist of it there, in, in particularly in verses 24 and 25. All right? Um, now, and the reason, the whole reason that I brought up all those verses is because what we see in the book of Hebrews, the laboring to enter into that rest, that idea, um, it's talking about the toil, the, if you want to say the, the conflict, maybe that's a good word to use, the conflict that's involved in a person 
coming to Christ. It's not talking about working to be saved, but it, there's a conflict. When, when a person who's an unsaved sinner, they're a rebel against God, and they hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit starts working and convicting and pointing out their need. There's a resistance there. There's a rebellion that takes place there. I mean, I know of very few people. I had, I had a professor at Bible college who his consistent testimony was the very first time he ever heard the gospel, he got saved. That, and I'm not saying it didn't. I don't know, you know. But uh, maybe, maybe there were other times that he just didn't realize. Okay, that's possible. But for Dr. Childs, that was his consistent testimony. And he, got, he was saved later in life, too. It wasn't, it wasn't a young person. But he said the very first time he heard the gospel, he got saved. But he grew up a Catholic, so there was some kind of, maybe a, maybe a not truly clear, but some kind of background there that, you know. But anyway, he's the only person that I know of that testifies to that. Now, there's probably others in the world that might. But most people that I know are at least to some degree like me, all right? There were years of exposure and years of God doing things and working in, a, in my life until I finally got saved. And I don't want to blame it on other people, but perhaps because of some of the the misguided teaching that I had heard for years. I was deceived. I mean, and to some degree or another, that fits a lot of people, okay? And that's one reason why sometimes it might seem like this is a hobby horse, because this is serious. And there's, you know, Jesus said, few will be saved. Now, that, that's not a, that's not a, a cardinal number, so to speak, but in comparison to the many that won't be saved, few will be saved. And he even in that context in Matthew 7, he says there's going to be a lot of people that say to him, Lord, Lord, a lot of people that are religious, however that is, and come to him thinking that they're okay or that they should have a place or whatever that will miss it because they haven't entered into that rest. That, as uh, uh, verse 11 or 12 of chapter 3 says, they haven't held that, uh, uh, the confidence steadfast unto the end. They didn't reach the threshold and come into the door. For some reason or another, they got turned away, or they turned away. I mean... And, and I think in a, in a way of illustrating that, you could say there's people on the, on the front porch saying, don't come here, don't come here. I mean, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of deceivers and false prophets, as Jesus says, and false teachers that are turning people away from truth. Jesus accused the, the scribes and the lawyers, I think are the two named in that particular passage, in, uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 12, I could be off on that, where he said they had the key of knowledge, but they kept it from people. Think about that accusation. There's a lot of religious leaders that are turning people from Christ. And woe be them. But, in, in, in the scope of all this, okay, again, 
Let's do this. <laughs> We're in John. Turn two passages I want to show you, and we may not make our review. But two passages. John chapter 10. All right. John chapter 10 is one. And if I'm in 12, I don't know why I'm going to the back yet. All right. John chapter 10. Hold, hold that. And John chapter 4. Two passages I want to show you. All right. Because what we're talking about is a portion in the Bible that may seem unclear is not going to, or I, let me word it this way, should never hold more weight in our minds than clear, very clear, understandable passages of Scripture, especially when there are multitudes of them. I mean, you understand what I'm saying, right? And let me just show you what I believe. Maybe you got a different one, but what I believe are the two clearest passages in the Bible that demonstrate there's no way a saved person can ever become unsaved again. All right? No way. Two statements, and they're both made by Jesus. All right, John chapter 10, you're probably familiar with the passage, but John chapter 10, uh, look at verse, well, look, verse 26, I think is a good place to start. Verse 26. But ye, he's talking to the Jewish leaders here. He says, but ye believe not because ye are not my sheep, as I said unto you. He's telling them, you don't believe me because you're not one of my sheep. All right? Now, that may seem like he's excluding them from the possibility of that. That's not the point. Because notice how his analogy goes on. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and, continuing on, and I give unto them eternal life. Now, we might be able to just stop there and say, that should settle it. Jesus said he gives them eternal life. If it's eternal, it's eternal. All right? But it doesn't stop there. And notice he says, and I give unto them eternal life, and notice this, and they shall never perish. So again, if we stop right there, what does Jesus say? Those that are his, he gives eternal life to, and they shall never perish. Let me just say, that is a, and, and, and in the original language, it is an, it is an, it's an, let me stop for a second. It's very emphatic. There is, and, and you could word it this way, there is absolutely no way that they will ever perish. And who's saying it? Jesus, does he know that? Sure does, right? He's not mistaken. So my point being, if he says it that way, there's absolutely no kind of loophole or, you know, end run around that. This is a, what you call a categorical denial. There is absolutely no way that any of his sheep will ever perish. End of story but he goes on more <laughs> he says uh lost my place i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand i mean you talk about protection double protection here but the point is again jesus said they'll never perish now the key to that is the only if, if you want to say, is whether they are his sheep. 
He says, his sheep hear his voice. He knows them. Remember the people that are turned away in Matthew 7, in, in Jesus' account there? He said, I never knew you. But his sheep, he knows. All right? And then he says, and they follow me. All right? Jesus' sheep, just like they'll never perish, they follow him. Now, again, that doesn't mean, and it was a typical analogy here, right? Shepherd and sheep. Sheep do wander. Sheep go, you know, they get out of step and go around and stuff, but the shepherd takes care of that. But they do follow him. The sheep follow the shepherd. And it's not saying they'll never sin, but it's saying they'll never perish. There's a big difference in that. All right, so that, that is one passage there. If anybody ever raises the question, is it possible for a, somebody who's saved to ever be unsaved? What does Jesus say? Absolutely not. All right, one other example, John chapter 4. You're familiar with the passage again. Jesus, the Samaritan woman at the well. And I got to quit after this. I'm sorry because I went over a minute here. But the woman at the well, uh, uh, John chapter 4. Everybody's familiar with that, right? You know the whole story, so I'm only going to read just a small part here, all right? Verse 11, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Now, when he said that, what's he doing? He's talking about the water in that well that she came to get, right? Whosoever drinks of this water, they're going to thirst again. They're going to have to keep coming back to the well because they're always going to be in need of more water down the road, right? Now, he uses that physical truth now he teaches a spiritual truth along with it. Notice what he says, but, verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall, uh, excuse me, I lost my place. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall, what's the next couple words? Shall never thirst. In other words, his water, you take one drink, you never need another drink. That's, that's the analogy, right? It's a once and done experience. And we could go on, but the point being is, who's speaking there again? It's Jesus. He's saying, if you take what I have to offer, it's eternal. You don't have, need anything else. It's there. You'll never thirst again. Again, teaching... <laughs> security, and the eternality of salvation. There's more, all right? But the point is, two points I want to make real quick here, is, all right, real salvation is eternal. It's secure, and the Bible makes that clear. You can't take the Bible at face value and deny that, because although there's a few statements someone could look at and read and scratch their head and say, I, want, I thought, you know... There's so many statements and teaching throughout that make it very clear. And the, 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 the unclear, this is true in anything, it should be true in anything, but unclear things aren't able to take away from the very clear things. In fact, you understand the unclear things in light of the clear things. That only makes sense. Otherwise, you'll never understand anything. You have to wonder about everything, right? And that's not God's intention, obviously. And so salvation is eternal. 
However, the point being, and what Hebrews is emphasizing here in this passage and in other of the warning passages that we see is, it's a warning about missing real salvation because you're still having some kind of mix-up of a fake. You're not coming to real salvation. And that takes some diligence sometimes on a person's part to make sure they've really come to the right place. That, that's different than I've worded it before, but I think that's just a clear way of saying it as well. That's what Hebrews is about in these passages. It's warning about the danger of missing salvation because of all kinds of other distractions and all kinds, you know, not willing to turn your back on yourself and your life and clinging only to Christ. And in, in, you, you can consider it in the Jewish mindset, Jews that still, you know, they, they still thought they had to hold on to everything, you know, of the fathers and what they had and all this kind of thing. Christ, he doesn't just fulfill it, but there's no need for that anymore. That's, that's part of the whole point. There's no need of anything but Christ and him alone. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just your word. Thank you for this portion of your word that, again, helps us to stop and remember that salvation is a very serious matter, and we should never, never take it lightly. And I pray that you'd, you'd help us to, as 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. And obviously, it's not a matter of, all, like, doubting and worrying. And I mean, if we're saved, we're saved. Now, there are many people that struggle because maybe they're not saved. Lord, if anybody's here like that, I pray you'd help them to come to the point of having a settled faith in Christ once and for all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.